Give the people what they want. Give the people what they want. Give the people what they want. Your weekly movement news roundup. Hello, today is October the 15th. You're watching Give the People What They Want, your weekly news roundup. It's brought to you, of course, by People's Dispatch. I'm joined by my colleague Zoe. And we'll soon have Vijay from Globetrotter joining us as usual for the show. I started with how today is October 15th. It's special for a number of reasons. The most important reason, of course, being the fact that today is the anniversary of the brutal assassination of Thomas Sankara, the great Marxist revolutionary from Burkina Faso. And this is a day when a lot of people reflect on what might have been if that brutal assassination did not take place because uh, Thomas Sankara was bringing about drastic, massive change in Burkina Faso that was radiating across Africa, across the global south, and was coming forth with a vision which uh, really was transformative. So today is the day to remember him. Today is the day to remember his legacy. It's important to note that <clears throat> his, the trial of his assassins has started now. That's 34 years after his murder, the trial of his assassins has started. Uh, among those being indicted, among, among those who are sort of being charged is his successor, his former aide and comrade, Blaise Kampaori, who became the president of Burkina Faso after his, assass after his assassination, was in power until 2014 when he was overthrown by a people's movement. And now he's at the Ivory Coast, he's taken asylum, he's refused to take part in the trial, as says another prominent military aide. And the trial is very important for a variety of reasons, of course, there is the question of justice, which uh, Sankara's family, Sankara's comrades have been demanding for decades now. But there is also the question of the revelation of details and facts which remain hidden to this day. And key among those details is the question of what was the nature of involvement of the ex-colonial powers such as France as well as the United States. There are reports, for instance, in Vijay's book, Washington Bullets. You can read about how there are reports that uh, officials who were associated with Liberia said, uh, Liberia's Petroleum Agency, for instance, clearly said some years later that there was definitely a US and French involvement in the assassination of Sankara. And the reasons for this are pretty obvious because what Thomas Sankara was saying at that time was radical and continues to remain radical today. For instance, his views on the question of debt, which for, which today is one of the pressing issues of our time, as we have discovered in the in the year in the past year during the pandemic. What Sankara talked about was how of us how officials of the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund had become technical assassins. And for instance, he said that you know we cannot repay the debt because we're not responsible for this debt. And this was the kind of questioning that was so essential at a time in the 80s when the IMF and the World Bank were resurgent once again, when they were offering third world countries this package of austerity, we'll talk about that more later, which destroyed so many economies. So the kind of questioning Sankara was doing at that time was so essential, was so important. And his brutal assassination marked a very uh, you know, tragic end to not just his own life, but also to an entire experiment. Of course, a lot of other reforms in the area of bringing women to government, in the area, for instance, of land reform, in the area of food sovereignty, in all these aspects, despite Burkina Faso being a relatively small country, Sankara was able to establish and achieve so much. And uh, we talked yesterday to Kambale Musawuli, an activist from the Congo, who was saying that for 
uh, even today for young Africans, what Sankara represents is the possibility of dreaming, is the possibility of realistic socialist change. So uh, it really, uh, France has said that it is it will release more documents regarding the assassination of and the murder of Sankara. Some documents have been released; they haven't been made public yet. Documents from the president's office at that time, François Mitterrand, his uh, documents haven't been released yet. So there is a very clear demand for justice, and there is a lot that possibly stands to be revealed, including what the United States and uh, France were doing at that time. There's very clear evidence that there was definitely some kind of involvement. So we will be watching this. We will be covering this in the coming weeks and months as well. And what we can hope for is that not only is justice delivered for Sakara's family, his comrades, but also that his vision, his vision of uh, his vision of a different kind of world, his vision of you know a global south, a vision of a third world which actually fights back in terms of uh, creating a different system altogether is uh, is recognized, is realized. So that's uh, what do you call from Thomas Sankara. Of course, we move to another vital issue. I see that Vijay has joined us. Welcome, Vijay, which is that uh, people who in some senses are continuing what Sankara talked about, continuing his vision and his vision through struggles, through popular protests, through attempts to build a different kind of systems. And as far as I understand, in the United States, there's been a wave of labor actions in recent times. Zoe, could you talk a bit about it? Yeah, well, this wave is now being referred to on social media and in common talk as Striketober. Um, because there's really an unprecedented, not unprecedented, because actually the United States, contrary to, you know, what many mainstream media wants to tell us, has a very rich history of labor organizing. But in recent months, uh, you know, people have been really organizing and fighting back, you know, against also decades of union repression. Um, against, you know, organized labor and many, you know, legislative attacks. And today, uh, sorry, Wednesday night, uh, 10,000 workers um, from John Deere, which is one of the largest, uh, you know, manufacturers of agricultural equipment and uh, machines, uh, went on strike. It's the largest private sector strike in the U.S. history. Um, the last time John Deere workers went on strike was in the uh, 70s, and they, you know, had a months-long strike where they actually won an important battle. And today they're back on the streets, they're back on the picket line to demand, you know, uh, fair working conditions. Um, John Deere, like many other large corporations in the United States, has uh, implemented a tiered system in terms of treating workers. So, you know, the older workers who have been there the longest, who maybe were, you know, part of these older generations of labor organizing, demanding rights, they actually are able to keep their pension rights because uh, John Deere and, you know, all these other corporations know that they can't, you know, there are agreements made, they can't really go back on them. However, for the people who are, um, you know, new hires, new employees, uh, maybe uh, less skilled, uh, as they like to say in the capitalist sense, um, they actually are afforded less rights. And so there's a tiered system. So people who are hired after a certain year uh, are not given or do not have a right to a pension. They don't have, uh, the company will not contribute to their pension. They won't ensure that they have health care after they retire. And so the workers uh, were presented with a contract through the United Auto Workers, the UAW, one of the largest unions in the U.S. And, you know, they overwhelmingly rejected this deal because 
this tiered system which existed before had two tiers. Now the company wanted to add a third tier, guaranteeing even less rights to these workers. And it's really in a, a direct way to try to divide people. Uh, you can have some rights, you can't, you were high, you know, so, and it's really interesting because the workers are fighting against this. They're saying it's not okay for some of us to have rights and some of us to not. And so now we're seeing a really impressive uh, industrial action at 14 facilities of Don John Deere across the United States. Very, very important, as I said, largest private sector strike in the US in recent history. Um, and then on Monday, uh, workers with the um, the union that represents uh, film crew workers in Hollywood are also set to go on strike. And so it's a really exciting time where, you know, of course, we saw the economic crisis really come to the fore during the COVID-19 pandemic. Millions lost their jobs. Millions were forced into the informal sector or into precarious, you know, no contract jobs without benefits. And people are saying, this isn't enough. We can't survive with this. They're organizing. Uh, union membership is growing. Uh, the U.S. has, as I mentioned before, had, you know, very coordinated attacks against organized labor. So union membership had reached historic lows. Now we're seeing that being reversed. It's very inspiring. Uh, these people taking to the streets, connecting their struggles to the struggles of other workers, and I think it's extremely inspiring. We are at People's Dispatch, of course, are going to be following Striketober. Very inspiring, and excited to see what will happen in Hollywood next week. Well, uh, I'm sorry I'm late, and I, all I can say is that, um, well, you know, I'm going to be talking now about the non-aligned meeting that's uh, taking place hosted by Serbia and Azerbaijan. Um, friends, it's the 60th anniversary of the non-aligned movement. And I have to say, it's uh, not a really, it's not a propitious time for the NAM bloc. Uh, you have Azerbaijan, as I said, one of the co-hosts of the NAM. Azerbaijan was recently in a war with Armenia. Um, you know, it's a very unclear issue whether a country should have the presidency of a multilateral body like that when it's in the middle of a conflict. But nonetheless, that's where we are. Serbia, of course, um, when it was part of Yugoslavia, one of the great founders of the NAM 60 years ago, uh, now again in a weakened position, uh, the NAM, of course, putting forward the two main issues, pressing issues of our time. Uh, one of them, of course, being vaccines. Uh, the question of vaccines was at the center of the discussion. Um, not sure really if there was anything new put forward by the uh, NAM bloc regarding vaccines, but it's very clear that the, um, the UN General Assembly president, uh, he said that he was going looking forward to advancing some of this part of the NAM agenda. Uh, there's deep frustration in the countries that belong to the non-aligned movement. Now the majority of the world's countries, um, you know, deep frustration that the uh, vaccine agenda hasn't advanced at all. There's really no uh, discussion about the question of having a vaccine, um, uh, you know, a moratorium on the patents, allowing patents to be set aside, allowing vaccines to be delivered and so on. Many countries, as we've already talked about, are already on their third, on their booster jab. Uh, significant that in some countries there's been no jab. Uh, it's important to note that in Ireland, the country of Ireland, um, the health ministry said, well, they're at 92% of vaccination. 
92% of vaccination. By the way, friends, there are many countries, member states of the NAM, where the vaccination rate is lower than 29%, let alone 92%. Yet the health ministry in Ireland, I thought quite sophisticatedly, said that this is too little, that they want to come closer to 100%. If that's the objective for Ireland, I must say it should be the objective for the other countries in the NAM. So one of the main issues at the non-aligned meeting was vaccine apartheid, was really raising the question of vaccines to the fore. The other issue of pressing importance, and I know that Zoe and I will both be at the COP26 in Glasgow, reporting from Glasgow for um, the question of climate change, on the question of climate change. Um, but that was the other big issue at the NAM, uh, raising the question of climate change, raising the question of mitigation, cost towards mitigation, cost towards shifting to so-called green energy and so on. That was on the table um, at the meeting hosted by Serbia and Azerbaijan. Now, once more, important to note that you can put this on the meeting. You can have as much discussion as you want about mitigation costs and so on. But you know that once you get to Glasgow, the big powers are going to come and suffocate all the discussion. Uh, Joe Biden, president of the United States, has announced that he is going to send 12 high officials to Glasgow. Ten of them will be cabinet members. Ten cabinet members coming from the United States. Um, this is going to be a, a suffocation of the debate. The U.S. is going to drive the agenda. It's very clear they're not going to permit countries uh, that are member states of the NAM from having a major role uh, at, 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 this, uh, at the meeting in Glasgow. So we're going to see what happens um, you know, at Glasgow. We're going to see if there is further discussion in the UN General Assembly um, of the vaccine question. But by and large, I have to say, you know, 60 anniv 60th anniversary of the non-aligned movement wasn't a very, um, you know, bold, uh, wasn't a very, um, you know, uh, well, I'm struggling for words here because I don't want to be too frank, but I thought it was a disappointing meeting. Uh, given that it was a major anniversary, given the fact that so much could have been put on the table, um, quite, I think, sobering that uh, the meeting was quite banal. It was not really like a head of state meeting. It was like a, like a foreign minister's meeting or perhaps even a health minister, environment minister meeting. It was a very mild uh, gathering. And, and, you know, it's not something that one should uh, set aside because the NAM is an important foundation for multilateralism, uh, for multipolarity. Uh, let's hope that at the 61st meeting of the NAM, things are a little different. You know, we came to this story from the John Deere strike. We're going to go to another strike. This is the strike in Italy. Prashant, what's happening with that strike? Right, Vijay. It's an interesting question because, uh, uh, of course, in Italy, there was a massive strike that we saw last week. And this was on a variety of issues, which act, a lot of which stem from the pandemic you mentioned the issue of vaccines, Italy, again, one of those countries which is administering booster doses, but also uh, imposing a lot of very strict restrictions regarding vaccines. And this has led to a lot of uh, polarization, for lack of a better word, which has been used by certain uh, right-wing elements conveniently to launch some massive mobilizations. And I think this is an issue that, you know, across the world, especially in Europe, it is something that we sort of need to watch out for because anti-vaccination sentiments combined with right-wing uh, right mobilizations are actually a very dangerous uh, phenomenon across the world. They promote not only 
I mean, of course, they, there is a massive health risk on the one hand, but they also promote very problematic anti-scientific attitudes. They are a huge shot in the arm for the right wing across the world. And so on the one hand, we have been having these mobilizations. And on the other hand, there has been the Italian left, the trade unions, which have been raising a very different set of demands and which are basically that the last one year of the pandemic has shown how in terms of policies, Italy has become so bankrupt. And Italy is a very good case to examine this. One of the worst countries worst affected by the pandemic in Europe. Unemployment has risen by about 1 million in the past one year alone. And it is led by what today, you know, what was supposedly great in the 90s, but today has been truly exposed, which is a technocratic prime minister. I mean, at some point, every country wanted a technocratic leader, but now the limitations of such leaders in politics have been exposed. But nonetheless, the Mario Draghi government is a complete experiment in technocratic politics and the kind of policies it has followed, the way it has stood by and stood behind big industry as they have fired people across sectors is pretty appalling for lack of better words. So what the unions have been protesting continuously is exactly this policy. This is not the first strike. There have been many, many such protests in recent times. And uh, the other issue, of course, was that some of these anti-vax protesters the day before the strike had attacked the office of one of the biggest uh, unions in, uh, in Italy, that is the CGIL. And they had ransacked the office know destroyed it and at that point the police were barely there after the after that of course Draghi came out with a huge set of condemnations but at that point when the union office was being destroyed there was very little action so this strike was also an attempt an opportunity to register very strong protest against the government the politics of the the the, poly, the current political system for basically promoting uh, this kind of right-wing mobilizations because it is the failure and the political the bankruptcy of this system that has actually led to the rise of the right wing. So uh, very uh, difficult times for Italians as a whole, for Italy's left as well, because they really have a huge challenge in terms of how to sort of uh, move ahead and how to make sure that these mobilizations don't, uh, you know, that the right wing doesn't keep on growing because of uh, the vaccination policies, because the general lack of knowledge about vaccines because of the rumors and misinformation that is happening around vaccines. So all of these, I think it's also a challenge and an opportunity for the left, for the, for the trade unions, for the left to keep raising these issues among their members, among their uh, constituency and uh, say, take it forward. Right. So that's what's happening in Italy. Very important country to sort of keep an eye on in the coming weeks and months as well, because like I said, a lot of what is being seen in Italian politics, in uh, politics, in, in European politics, in uh, politics in countries across the world are uh, reflected around this. So it looks like Vijay has been forced to drop out due to internet connections. So we shall move on to our next story, which is again a story of resistance, of protest. It's one of those good weeks where not give the people what they want. We are able to report more protests than depressing news of uh, hunger and violence and uh, structural inequality. So this here, we're talking, of course, about protests from Latin America, protests from the indigenous sections who have been, over the years, some of the most powerful upholders of democracy, of human rights, of, you know, in the struggle against capitalism, in the struggle against extractivism. So Zoe, take us through what has been happening in the struggle of indigenous peoples across Latin America.
Yeah, well, as you mentioned, Prashant, it's been a very powerful week in terms of mobilizations across the Americas um, of indigenous communities. Um, because this week, uh, you know, the second Monday of October is in the United States, for example, historically celebrated as Christopher Columbus Day. Um, in Latin America, this is uh, the 12th of October is celebrated as what <laughs> nations call, it's, it's hard to say because it's such a kind of ridiculous name. It's the encounter of two worlds. And so, you know, these holidays that were created by uh, you know, the government in the U.S., uh, governments across Latin America are these, you know, horrific symbols of what was kind of the uh, invasion of the Americas by colonizers, by the Spanish, by the uh, French, Portuguese, British. Um, and really, uh, they've become in some places kind of this nationalistic celebration, this kind of part of this process that tries to erase the history of genocide, of the violent process of colonization that you know occurred in the Americas, um, and in and in response to this, of course, for centuries, you know, indigenous communities, indigenous people have been resisting this. They've been resisting the process of colonization, the genocide, and of course, you know, when these holidays became uh, institutionalized, there was also resistance um, in the United States. This Columbus Day has been a, a strong point of contention, uh, as you know, many point out. Um, it's also factually incorrect. Columbus did not even, you know, in his voyages, he did not even arrive to what is uh, known as North America. He, of course, was part of the voyage that uh, invaded the, the Caribbean and, you know, of course, caused genocide and uh, ethnic annihilation there. But he really, you know, in the U.S., he, he didn't really have much of a, he wasn't part of that. And so, in the U.S., uh, people have been for decades demanding that this holiday be uh, eliminated and be replaced with Indigenous Peoples Day. In Latin America, um, the meeting of two worlds day has been, you know, there's been a push to replace this. And in, in many countries is recognized as Indigenous Resistance Day. Um, in countries like Bolivia, where, you know, an indigenous government actually came to power and, you know, brought forth the proposal of a plurinational state recognizing it's, you know, multiple indigenous communities, multiple indigenous nations. Um, they, of course, do not celebrate the meeting of two nations. And so this day has been, you know, very important. In neighboring Chile, uh, they continue to recognize this colonial holiday. And, you know, of course, Chile is one of the, the places of greatest repression of indigenous movements. The Mapuche people have been under constant attack. And so on this, on the 12th of October, while we saw a lot of, you know, really uh, impressive protests across the, the continent, there was a very unfortunate incident in Chile. Um, Mapuche people carried out a, a massive peaceful protest, and they were met with brutal, brutal police violence, um, you know, pretty reflective of what the attitude of the Chilean government has been to this community. And in this uh, repressive uh, actions, um, a human rights defender, Denise Cortez, was killed. Um, the police are saying that she was uh, attacked by a, a rocket that was fired, a firework that was fired by the protesters. But multiple witnesses have said that she was hit by a projectile by the police, the infamous Carabineros in Chile. Um, and so this week has just has been a lot of 
you know, resistance, historical resistance, resisting this narrative, this colonial narrative that governments still are trying to impose in the U.S. Uh, there was also, there's been a week of protest organized by um, indigenous organizations and communities demanding that the Biden government take action on, uh, you know, climate change, stop extractive projects, which is one of the biggest issues for indigenous communities in North America from the tar sands, the oil pipelines, you know, just so many different uh, fronts of struggle there. Um, and so I think it's really important that, you know, on this week, which represents so much history, so much contentious history, uh, and so much resistance that uh, this really be lifted up. We can look at the example of Bolivia, you know, thousands of people marching in defense of the Uipala, in defense of the indigenous socialist government that has been there to defend the rights of indigenous people and really set an example for the world. So this is kind of the the roundup of uh, the week of indigenous resistance and indigenous people's day. Um, I know uh, tomorrow is World Food Day. Um, we at People's Dispatch along with other uh, media projects have been involved um, in publishing a series on hunger in the world uh, in the lead up to this World Food Day. So Prashant, what can you tell us about what's happening with hunger in the world today in India? Right, Zoe, like you said, uh, it's it's an important day also because people kind of forget about hunger. I mean, when you're talking about the issues facing the world, many pressing issues, of course, but the appalling fact that millions live in such precarious hunger is truly disgraceful. It's something some people almost take for granted. You know, that's like, uh, so I think one of the important aspects of uh, what the, what we have been doing with the hunger series, as well as many other organizations, which I think Zoe will talk about, is actually to put it front and center. And in India's case, it's especially important because uh, the just, just today, actually, reports came that India slipped in the global hunger index to the 101st spot. And this is behind almost all its neighbors. It's behind so many other countries. 101st on the index is pretty bad for a country of India's, uh, you know, India's power, India's, uh, say, India's size, its GDP. The important thing, of course, to note in India's case is that the granaries or the government go-downs, as they call it, are full to the brim. India has had record harvests for, for quite some time now. So it's unbelievable that, uh, say, you know, a country which has this is still suffering so badly in the global food index in terms of various indicators. The government, of course, contesting it. But I think the facts on the ground are pretty uh, clear. Zoe, could you maybe take us through also what popular movements are actually doing on the occasion of World Hunger Day or Food Day? Yeah, I think it's a super important point because, you know, of course, in hunger is, you know, a major global problem there was it was in the 90s became very acute and there were many responses you know from the more corporate NGO sectors the the concept of food security um, was emerged but uh, popular movement said it's not enough for there to be enough calories going into you know people's stomachs and it's not enough for uh, there just to be any type of food. Um, food is a extremely political issue, how the food gets produced. And so, you know, movements that are part of the international platform, La Via Campesina, which is a network of, you know, peasant movements, agricultural movements across the world, um, which also emerged in this moment of, you know, struggle when the land and control over food systems became such a pressing issue in the emergence of kind of the neoliberal era. Um, they 
came up with the concept of food sovereignty. And so when talking about food sovereignty, it's thinking about the fact that people need to eat, but they also need control over how food is produced, how is it distributed, and how people are able to consume this. Because um, when we look at the food production today, um, I know at least in uh, the Americas, the, you know, the use of pesticides is a huge problem. So the food that most people get access to is highly toxic, has a, a, a lot of chemicals. What people are consuming is not even healthy. Um, and so Via Campesina has you know, come up with this uh, concept of food sovereignty to say that nations need to be able to have the right to produce food for their people, produce healthy food for the people. Um, they need to ensure this, give support to small peasants who are actually the, the people who are able to sustain the world. Um, I think, you know, once again, the COVID-19 pandemic gave us the clear lesson that uh, even though, you know, marginalized sectors such as peasants, such as, you know, service workers are seen as expendable, they're the people who sustain our society and sustain our economy and allow us to continue surviving. So in this week on World Food Day, uh, the Via Campesina is commemorating 25 years in the struggle for food sovereignty. Um, they have been organizing a lot of different activities to raise awareness of, you know, the victories they've had in certain places. I think we've talked a lot about the Landless Rural Workers Movement. They've made enormous strides within Brazil to demand the right to produce food for the people, to have the right to the land. Um, of course, in many of these countries, the system of land tenureship is also extremely unequal. And so I think these are all really important concepts and ideas to think about when we're talking about who gets to produce food, who gets to eat it, and who gets to distribute it. Um, of course, this is very, you know, on an international uh, stage, this is a very complex issue, but it's things we need to be talking about when we're thinking about struggles for transformation and struggles for justice. Um, so stay tuned to La Via Campesina. They'll be publishing a lot of different things. We'll be launching the uh, PDF of all the hunger stories tomorrow, reports from across the world about the situation of hunger in these countries and the struggle of movements um, to be able to meet that gap. Absolutely, Zoe. Uh, we began with Thomas Sankara, of course, and we end with World Food Day. It's important because Sankara once said that he who feeds you controls you. And I think that's an uh, important thing to remember on a day like this, both the legacy of a powerful revolutionary and the challenges ahead in making sure that everyone is just able to at least eat. So uh, that's all we have in today's show. This was Give the People what they want brought to you by people's dispatch and globetrotter we will definitely see you next week with hopefully more stories of protests and resistance of people building something else building something better not in the joe biden way of course but in a very very different kind of way so until until then see you Yeah.